Welcome to an Anxious Poets podcast mini-series on the cusp of two realms. Synchronicity, the interleaving of our inner and outer worlds. Episode 3, A Night Sea Journey. Hello again, I'm Adrian Scott, I am the Anxious Poet and in this, the third episode of this mini-series on the cusp of two realms, synchronicity, the interleaving of our inner and outer worlds, I want to talk about the book I wrote called A Night Sea Journey, the collection of poems that sprang from what Jung would call an upsurge of the unconscious what most people call some kind of mental breakdown, what doctors might call an attack of generalised anxiety disorder. I began almost immediately to try and write my way through it, hoping I might write my way out of it. Um, so this collection was, was the recording of that confrontation with the unconscious, if you like. Um, I didn't know it was that at the time. I just felt terrible. I felt absolutely panic-stricken. Waves of anxiety. I went to the doctor. I just didn't know what had hit me. Um, it happened at first when I was in Edinburgh. My daughter was at the festival. And I thought I was going to pass out. And then palpitations... I just felt dreadful. I went to A&E. They couldn't find anything wrong with me. That kept happening. And it was a wretched time. A wretched few months. Everything in my life seemed to fall apart. I became completely agoraphobic. I didn't want to go out. I found staying in terrifying. I just thought I was going to die. Um, the feeling of dread was what I would expect the feeling of dread to be when you are about to die. Um, it was it was really difficult. But as it continued, I realised I wasn't going to die, but there was something wrong. And as I've said in others of these podcasts, it suddenly dawned on me, for one reason and another, that this was all just anxiety now that just is a big just it 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 was horrible but i managed to find a barrier to put up to say you what i'm feeling is anxiety it's nothing else and somehow that was the beginning of getting through it to realize that these were just feelings now, the body and the psyche doesn't lie. These were things that I'd stored up for years. In the last episode, I talked about enantiodromia, Jung's idea that what you stress in the conscious world, its opposite will be 
alive and active very lightly in your unconscious well i had stressed in my conscious world as i've said being calm being wise being a, a magician being the one who knows so all of that turmoil of not knowing of uncertainty of anxiety was all boiling away under the surface and alongside a physical condition called hyperparathyroidism that suddenly was like it was turned upside down and all of those feelings that I had buried were in charge and it was a pretty painful experience at the beginning of the night sea journey book I quote liberally from a website, I found this, I, I did a, a search because I loved the term a night sea journey. I knew Jung had used it and it seemed to be a great description, a great metaphor for what I had experienced and was experiencing. A night sea journey, when you're on the sea, you know, it's very hard to know where you are, there can be storms. The only thing you can steer by is the, in, in the night is the, are the stars if you can see them so i found this website and this I've, i just thought this was the perfect description a night sea journey an archetypal motif in mythology psychologically associated with depression and the loss of energy characteristic of neurosis the night sea journey is a kind of descensus ad inferos a descent into hades and a journey to the land of ghosts somewhere beyond this world beyond consciousness hence an immersion in the unconscious and that's a quote from the psychology of the transference by Jung the website goes on to say mythologically the night sea journey motif usually involves being swallowed by a dragon or sea monster it is also represented by imprisonment or crucifixion dismemberment or abduction experiences traditionally weathered by sun gods and heroes gilgamesh osiris christ dante odysseus aeneas in the language of the mystics it is the dark night of the soul jung interpreted such legends symbolically as illustrations of the regressive movement of energy in an outbreak of neurosis and its potential progression and he then quotes from jung again the hero is the symbolic exponent of the movement of libido. Entry into the dragon is the regressive direction and the journey to the east, the night sea journey, with its attendant events, symbolises the effort to adapt to the conditions of the psychic inner world. The complete swallowing up and disappearance of the hero in the belly of the dragon represents the complete withdrawal of interest from the outer world. The overcoming of the monster within is the achievement of adaptation to the conditions of the inner world and the emergence slipping out of the hero from the monster's belly with the help of a bird which happens at the moment of sunrise symbolises the recommencement of progression. And that's from On Psychic Energy. The website goes on. All the night sea journey myths derive from the perceived behaviour of the sun which in Jung's lyrical image sails over the sea like an immortal god who every evening is immersed in the maternal waters and is born anew in the morning, symbols of the mother and the rebirth. The sun going down, analogous to the loss of energy in a depression, is the necessary prelude to rebirth. Cleansed in the healing waters, the unconscious, the sun 
ego consciousness lives again. And that was from a website of, a, of an analyst called Max, Maxim J. McDowell. That's what I began to realise I was experiencing. When I got over the initial shock and the just horror is probably the right word at how I was feeling because I, I would wake up with a start. I could feel the blood hammering in my, my neck and I would be full of, of fear and adrenaline. And I, I, it would be seven o'clock in the morning. I was taking all kinds of tablets at first. Don't have a problem with tablets, but they didn't help me. Uh, that's all I can say. And so I couldn't work out whether the symptoms I was feeling were the, the, the SSRI that I was taking uh, or, or what. And then because they kept me awake, they gave me sleeping tablets. Uh, the sleeping tablets were amazing. I just would take them. I wouldn't remember falling asleep, but bang, seven o'clock, wide awake. Oof, full of anxiety. Through the day, it would begin to ease. And then, and they gave me diazepam, which is Valium. And, and that was like paracetamol for anxiety, but it didn't last long. And when it wore off, it felt worse. And then by the evening, by about half nine, I'd feel normal again. I don't know why it's, I don't know why. Uh, and I used to say to Wilma, if I could bottle this feeling now and drink it in the morning, I'd feel a lot better. But then bang, the next morning there I was. So it was, it, it was a real night sea journey. But it says in that, that text that I've just read to you that somehow it's the necessary prelude to rebirth. And, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of men's work. I talked about liminal space and um, rites of passage and dark nights of the soul. And, and I was full of it all. But I actually know experientially what that actually felt like. Liminality being the threshold space but in that liminality I didn't know whether what was up and what was down I had no idea what I was doing it was it was so disorientating unbearably disorientating and anyone who's going through that have every sympathy somehow you have to find rhythms and routines I found walking I found um just being gentle with myself and not expecting too much of myself. Um, talking to other people, but not talking about it all the time. You know, going to friends, accepting that I was in a very vulnerable position and accepting that vulnerability. Um, that that this, was a, this wasn't something I could just ignore or get over and forget. This had to be paid attention to. I want to read from Thomas Merton, who I've had an ongoing conversation with in these uh, podcast in this mini-series and forgive the masculine language in this 
uh, hear it as he or she, but he was writing in the early 60s. Um, but I think what he has to say here goes to that idea of paying attention to what's happening to you and finding rhythms and routines that provide a container. One of the rhythms for me was seeing my analyst, my therapist. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to afford to see her once a week. Um, I think there are certain rhythms, and he, he is in these rhythms, you'll hear them. I sweep. I spread a blanket in the sun. I cut grass behind the cabin. Soon I will bring the blanket in again and make the bed. The sun is overclouded. Perhaps there will be rain. A bell rings in the monastery. A tractor growls in the valley. Soon I will cut bread, eat supper, say psalms, sit in the back room as the sun sets, as the birds sing outside the window, as silence descends on the valley, as night descends. As night descends on a nation intent upon ruin, upon destruction, blind, deaf to protest, crafty, powerful, unintelligent, it is necessary to be alone, to be not part of this, to be in exile, the exile of silence, to be, in a manner of speaking, a political prisoner. No matter where in the world he may be, no matter what may be his power of protest or his means of expression, the poet finds himself ultimately where I am alone, silent, with the obligation of being very careful not to say what he does not mean, not to let himself be persuaded to say merely what another wants him to say, not to say what his own past work has led others to expect him to say. The poet has to be free from everyone else, and first of all from himself, because it is through this self that he is captured by others. Freedom is found under the dark tree that springs up in the centre of the night and of silence, the paradise tree, the axis mundi, which is also the cross. Freedom is found under the dark tree that springs up in the centre of the night and of silence, the paradise tree, the axis mundi, which is also the cross. That's a really powerful piece of writing, I think. Um, Somehow, in the middle of my night sea journey to mix my metaphors, that tree sprang up. Uh, it's it, the Axis Mundi. That is the turning point of the world. And I want to read you a poem that um, that came to me quite early on, in the. Uh, in the breakdown that I was experiencing. It's called All at Sea. And it quotes again, Jung, All at Sea. The night sea journey is a kind of descensus ad inferos, a descent into Hades, and a journey to the land of ghosts, somewhere beyond this world, beyond consciousness, hence an immersion in the unconscious. I did feel like I'd gone into the underworld. In all sorts of ways, I certainly did in my dreams. My dreams were full of the underworld. Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea, not knowing what course to steer? The bath I ran was full of fear, its water full of cortisol and adrenaline, just at the prospect of having to leave the house. My wife thought getting out would do me good, 
just a drive into the Peak District, familiar and non-threatening roads to soothe me. It didn't work. Iciness spread down the spinal cord, dread like a wasp's nest inside my guts, angrily contorted by each turn, spilling stingers. Stop off at a garden centre, she suggests. Everything in me wants to brutally scream, get me home, but there is no relief in that. The cake is like a cloying dust in my mouth, the tea tasteless, it furs my tongue with lactose. I endure the leather settee, the Sunday supplement. Back in the car, I feel an abnormal sense of achievement, but it is not incremental, not another deposit in the bank of conquered panic. It seems every time I make another attempt at some agrophobic summit bid, I am right back at base camp. The only thing I can find faith in is that it is night and the stars are a constant and when the storm clears, I might find steerage. I had a thing called IAPS. It was a six session course offered by the GP. Uh, of cognitive behavioural therapy. It's, it felt to me a bit like first aid for people with anxiety or mental health issues. And the guy that delivered it wasn't a therapist, he was a coach. A lovely guy. And it, it did, just talking to someone, as well as my therapist, it did help. Um, but there was a lot of form filling to see whether you were a bit better than last time. And it was all built on the incremental idea that somehow the more you challenge your anxiety, the more you did stuff, the better it would be. Now, that might be the case for some people, but it certainly wasn't the case for me, as that poem says. Every time it was just as difficult, I felt just as panicky. It didn't, I didn't, it didn't have that effect on my psyche to say, well, if you cope last time, you'll cope this time. I just felt the same level of anxiety and agoraphobia. And to me, the night sea journey metaphor really helped because it felt like I was in a storm at sea and I couldn't see the stars and that I just had to ride it out. I had to keep just living that orderly life with those way marks and protections and, and, and um, things like seeing my therapist, things like walking, things like sitting in nature things like um writing writing for me i didn't feel anxious when i was writing and i could sit for quite a long time and write because it absorbed my attention and taking photographs was another thing that absorbed my attention enough that i suddenly think oh i don't feel anxious bang and then i did the only thing i can find faith in is that it is night and the stars are a constant, and when the storm clears, I might find steerage. Uh, that was that was what I clung to, I suppose. Uh, that's what made life feel bearable uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I found another book. I went uh, as I got a bit better. I went to a, a spring conference of the Guild of Pastoral Psychology, and. A guy called Andreas Schweitzer, a Jungian analyst, was speaking. And he'd written this book called The Sun God's Journey Through the Netherworld. And it was all about a descent of the sun god Ra 
into the world of night, into the charnel houses of the underworld. Um, and, and I actually found the book really helpful. And so I, in the Night Sea Journey book, I quote this guy quite often. Only when the storm has done its work does it abate. That's my words. Painful though it might be, this dismemberment is inevitable, for it necessarily precedes the union and regeneration. Complete disillusion, dissolution precedes complete renewal. I certainly felt dismembered and dissolved. I felt taken apart. Everything that I would have relied on and thought was I, I was seemed to be unreliable, and I wasn't. I wasn't a calm person. I wasn't able to easily deal with situations. I wasn't on top of anything. I felt vulnerable, a victim. Everything turned upside down. When Jung had his own confrontation with the unconscious, between 1913 and 1918, I think it was, he equally wrote his way out of it in some ways that there's a he wrote these notebooks called the black books which he then wrote up into the red book which have recently been published and you get an idea of what he was going through um and he withdrew from his working life and went inwards um and he he did talk about it and this is one of the things that he said i wrote down the fantasies as well as i could I made an earnest effort to analyse the psychic conditions under which they had arisen. But I was able to do this only in clumsy language. First I formulated the things I, as I had observed them, usually in high-flown language, for that corresponds to the style of the archetypes. Archetypes speak the language of high rhetoric, even of bombast. It is a style I find embarrassing. It grates on my nerves, as when someone draws his nails down a plaster wall or scrapes his knife against a plate. But since I did not know what was going on, I had no choice but to write everything down in the style selected by the unconscious itself. Sometimes it was as if I was hearing with my ears, sometimes feeling it with my mouth, as if my tongue were formulating words. Now and then I heard myself whispering aloud, Below the threshold of consciousness, everything was seething with life. Everything was seething with life. If you ever get a chance to look at the Red Book, you can see how his unconscious was seething with life. He had visions. He, he, he imagined meeting uh, all these figures. And it, it's very... I, I don't know how he kept his sanity, to be honest. I mean, I was scared stiff of anything like that. I, I started to read his biography, autobiography, um, Memories, Dreams and Reflections, and I found it too disturbing. I was so worried. I said to my therapist once, I'm really worried I'm going I'm, I'm psychotic. I'm going to be psychotic. And she said, if you were, you wouldn't know. <laughs> Which was strangely reassuring. Um, she said, you wouldn't be worried about it if you were. Um, but... That's what anxiety does. You just worry. You get anxious about being anxious. Every I just analysed every thought, every sensation, every experience. I can as I'm talking about it. I can feel my hands pressing together tightly because it was so tense. I was just I lost three stone um, in about five months. I just burned up energy. 
it's tough. I recognise mental health issues are very tough. But I, as you can hear in the All at Sea poem, I started to try and just write it down. <clears throat> and it really helped. Anything creative, I think, when you're suffering from things like that, is a very helpful process. It, it releases you to be honest with yourself about what's going on and to somehow stand back from yourself a little bit. Um, and I think that's a good thing. By perspective, I mean being able to stand back from yourself. I think the realisation this was just anxiety gave me that chance to step back from myself, to observe myself in some way. Um, and I think once the overwhelming power of the unconscious had begun to recede a little bit, I was able to be a little bit more circumspect. And this quote from the Desert Fathers, uh, a, a father called Abba Theodore, will help here. A brother came to see Abba Theodore and started to talk and inquire about things that he himself had not tried yet. The old man said to him, You have not found a boat or put your gear into it, and you haven't even sailed, but you seem to have arrived in the city already. Well, do your work first, then you will come to the point you are talking about now. That could have been written for me at that point. Do your work first, and then you will come to the point you're talking about now. I've been talking about that point, but I didn't understand it. I hadn't, as he said, found a boat, or put my gear into it, or even sailed. But I was sailing now, and I was on the night sea journey. And I want to share with you three poems from that period that will hopefully give some insight into the night sea journey, certainly into mine, but hopefully there's something universal in what I have to say. Here's the first, writing as therapy. During the lunch break, she said, you are a walking miracle. The tremulous touch of her Parkinson's on my writing hand. In the morning session, I had spared no detail of my breakdown, all the collywobbled, jelly-bellied quaking of it all. Four months ago, I had worried at myself, not about public readings or workshops, but rather could I go up to the co-op and make it back alive. Now, here I am, sitting in a round of delivery, speaking lines gleaned from a dark and no-mooned night when only my pen knew its way. The real miracle is not that I was heroic during my terrors, I just endured them. The real miracle is that others had come through, that they believed I would, and acted accordingly. Each face softened by stress lines, conversant with loss and repair, read my panicked gaze as they visited, turning my day's pages. And you, lady, entering my lines at lunchtime, as one who has touched the hem of a garment, your revivals mend me, and point the way for my pen to follow. the lady in question became, has become a good friend. And I was doing a, a, I'm amazed now, four months after it all sort of really crashed in on me, I'd been asked to do 
a workshop on writing as as a therapeutic tool um, up at Murfield in uh, in West Yorkshire near Huddersfield where David White comes from actually the poet and there's a, a theological college and a monastery and beautiful church and I decided that I would try and do it I was very anxious about going but the agoraphobia had receded a little bit and and I, I I decided very early on that I would talk about what was happening to me and that I would as the poem says um, write lines gleaned from a dark and no moon night when only my pen knew its way and I, I did just keep writing I kept writing how it felt that's the creative perspective I think that you can step back from it I've heard comedians make jokes about their own anxiety um, I think artists portray some perspective on their own anxiety a lot of the time I remember on one of these podcasts talking to Helen Mort the lovely Sheffield poet you know do you actually need to be anxious to have some kind of troubled mind in order to write poetry I mean, I've talked about this with David White, and he, he he's never suffered from anxiety. Um, he he, I think he there are dark periods for him, but um, yeah, I don't know. But certainly for me, getting this ability to sit and write, not feel anxious, but get it onto the page, and this lovely lady who had suffered suffers from Parkinson's disease. And yet, wonderfully lives with it, lives a full life with it. Um, she was just so helpful to me. She's called Liz, and this last stanza, and you lady entering my lines at lunchtime, as one who has touched the hem of a garment, your revivals mend me and point the way for my pen to follow. I'm so grateful to people like Liz and others who had faith. They had faith that I would traverse this night sea journey and come out the other end and that I would remain intact. Like all good night sea journeys, it didn't end quickly. It went on for months, in fact, a few years really, on and off. I'm at the point now where I think I am in some kind of recovery, but it, it never goes. It never leaves you. I think once you've had something like that, it's always there. And and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, a few months after this, I can't quite remember how long, I decided to go on a retreat. Uh, I felt I needed some space. Uh, I felt less agoraphobic. And, and one of the things that I discovered that really helped was walking. So I went on a retreat to the Lake District with a wonderful priest called Daniel or Donal, as some people call him, O'Leary, Daniel O'Leary. And he wrote in the tablet for a long time, a Catholic periodical, 
brilliant spiritual reflections. He wrote books about spirituality. Um, he'd been a parish priest in places like Garforth and Ripon. He'd really learned from being with the people. And he was a proper, uh, for those of you who are anything to do with Catholicism, he was a proper Vatican II priest. Um, believed in what the council advocated, the um, opening up of the church to the people. Um, he was irascible. He was a bit of a raconteur. He was very loquacious. He could speak for Ireland. Um, just a lovely man. He he got cancer at the end of his life, bowel cancer, and he wrote the last book. If you want to read something about passing from uh, one realm to another, the book is called Dancing to My Death with the Love Called Cancer. And it's just the bravest, incredible uh, truth-telling about leaving this life and it, it, it's just it's just brilliantly written and brilliantly observed um, and he was leading the retreat and driving up there I suddenly felt the anxiety come back going over the snake and then up the M6 I could feel it all just sitting on my shoulders again and I thought oh it'll probably pass and the first evening I still felt really rough and really agitated. I had bad dreams that I had to work on. Um, and as I was walking to one of the sessions, there was a, a one of the Herdwick sheep and it had a, a crow or a, or a rook on its head, pecking at its head. I found out later that they peck off the ticks and things, but it just illuminated what I was feeling like some like some carrion was pecking at my head. And um, he said, oh, well, we've got you've got a free afternoon. So I said to the warden, we were at this place called Glenthorne House, a Quaker place up in Grasmere. I said to the warden, I really want to do a walk. I want to take my camera and do a walk and just find a place to settle. And uh, he said, oh, there's a great walk straight from here, straight up that hill, and it'll take you up to Easdale Town. The views are fantastic. Just, just, you know, it's not too difficult a walk. I realised how fit he was when he, when he said that, uh, when I tried to do the walk. So I, I set off up Easdale Town to do my work, as that uh, desert father, Theod Abba Theodore, says. You need to do your work, you know, get out on the sea and this is the piece I wrote Easdale Tarn I came back from high Easdale Tarn having walked off all my ingratitude a spark of sheep with earthen smell the lone herdwick greenly chewing willing to absorb all those spines that needle me into its own dusky pelt the tarn when I reached it rippled with my unstillness and then settled into the flawless reflection of the crag. On the way down again, I spilled over into the waterfall, old griefs, ones I usually pinch back in my throat, leading to misery's heartburn. 
the winding dry stone wall, greyly slate-driven, led me down carefully into the field, where the cows lay herdwise in the heat, sighing cuddily. A mother beast lay her brow softly on the brown vastness of her bull, as they mothered and fathered me in the afternoon's milky haze. The bridge over the final beck smoothed its slate and flags toward the little red post box, and I composed all my letterly regrets to be sent to those I bruise, and a long missive of frustration to one whose help didn't. I felt the path wondering under my feet if its directness had been too brutal, but the gate to the road opened and welcomed all the scuffs my boots wear. I came back from High Easdale Tarn and my teacup was white like a new page. I came back from High Easdale Tarn and my teacup was white like a new page. I really did do my work on that walk. I, I was brimming with ingratitude and frustration and anger. And did I do my work? The natural world did the work for me in a way that like saying that the sheep absorbed the spines that needled me. And it was September, but it was unnaturally hot. It felt like a muggy summer's day there was that milky haze and you know I stomped off up there and it's a heck of a climb um, it, 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 it was quite tiring and then you get to the crag and it sits uh, to the to the uh, tarn and it sits below the crag I realize now because David White they do a walk that that goes up there and then straight up to the top of the crag called High White Stones which is brutal um, but this was hard enough and um, and and I took photographs of the tarn and it, it did, it settled there was a sort of that the lovely wind ripple on it and then the wind died down and the, when it went like a mill pond and I settled and I concentrated on taking photographs and there weren't many people up there and it was just it's this bowl of water and then you look down onto Grasmere it's stunning and as I walk back down, there's this incredible waterfall with a pool that people often swim in. And I felt all those old griefs that... I find it hard to cry about things. And the tears come and then they get stuck in my throat. I call it misery's heartburn. But I did let them go. And then the cows felt like my family. This mother and father cows... <laughs> The bull was huge and the, I've never seen a, 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 a cow put its head on a bull like that. She was as if she was using him as a pillow and they just felt like my family. And then this little red post box and I realised when I'm anxious like that, I'm not pleasant to be around and I wanted to say sorry. And then the the I was frustrated with my therapist at the time. I... I it didn't feel like it was working and I was all full of bristling anger about it and I wanted to write this missive to one whose help didn't I mean how ungrateful can you be of course she helped me but but I think that's part of the therapist's job is is to stick to their guns 
and take the projections that are thrown at them. Um, and she was very good at that. Um, and, and didn't back off from saying hard things to me. Um, and then, you know, the path, the gate opened and all my, I noticed my boots were completely scuffed. And I thought, wow, you know, the road just accepts my scuffed boots, all my scars. And I went and got a cup of tea and this lovely white cup. And I thought, wow, I feel refreshed. I feel renewed. My teacup was white like a new page. And I got my journal and wrote this poem. It just came out just like that. Amazing. I wrote my way through it and felt better. Felt better. Um, and that's that, you know, getting into the boat, sailing, being prepared to work with what you're feeling, not not trying to mask it or medicate it or hide away from it, just walk into it. The final piece I want to read to you from A Night Sea Journey is called The Terrible Invitation, and it's about St. Francis. St. Francis and Vincent van Gogh were like um, a council, uh, a little a little pair that would sit round me and help me through this night sea journey. I turned to them a lot, their writings, Vincent's letters, his paintings, Francis's, uh, that lovely book that I'm going to quote from now by Donald Spoto, The Reluctant Saint, which is a biography of Francis. Um, and, and, you know, other books about Francis. And I've got uh, around me now where I'm speaking, I've got lovely pictures. There's a, there's a, a piece painted on glass um, by Luciani, uh, or is it Cruciani, um, of Francis's feet with birds all around. He was meant to have preached a sermon to the birds. And then another lovely picture, an icon of Francis with a wolf and magpies on his hand. And they seemed to be companions to me. And I wrote this poem really early on. I, we have a little um, vaulted chapel in our basement. It, it was a, a wine cellar, I think, but we made it into a chapel with the very famous crucifix. Uh, not the actual one, um, a replica of the very famous crucifix that spoke to St Francis right early when he'd had a massive breakdown. I think he was suffering from PTSD. Um, he'd gone off. His dad was a rich cloth merchant, nouveau riche, buying up the properties of old aristocrats who were on their uppers. And he'd clothed his son in great armour and sent him off to fight the neighbouring town of or city of... Perugia and he got captured and was in a dungeon for a year I think and his father had to ransom him back and when he came back he was a very changed man um, all the party boy had gone out of him he wandered farther and further from the city which was a dangerous thing to do in those days because there was they were not policed the roads and they were full of brigands and dangerous people but he just wandered and wandered. And he had a breakdown, I'm certain. Uh, he was very lost. And 
and he found this broken down old chapel within which was this Byzantine crucifix and the crucifix spoke to him and said go Francis rebuild my church which as you see is falling into ruin and Francis took this completely literally and started to rebuild the little chapel and you'll see from the poem what I made of that um, so I sat in front of the replica crucifix in this little vaulted cellar in my own basement feeling miserable and wretched and this is what came to me uh, I've got a, a quote from Spotto at the beginning the terrible invitation the place seemed on the verge of collapse from old age and neglect that's the church the walls were cracked the low vault was crumbling the beams were rotting wild grass sprouted along a narrow window and the crescent-shaped apse once bright blue with painted stars was faded and peeling no one had worshipped at San Damiano for years. Living can become a crumbled-down church in whose ruins you accept your smithereened self and see it mirrored in a crucifix hanging by a thread. This is what happened to the man called Francis, a nickname from a French mother. His real name was John after the gaunt locust eater of Judea. He went off to fight Perugia, next of many walled cities, a young man dreaming of nightly standing, taken, dungeoned for a year, needing a father's ransom, returning sick, recovering far from his old life, beyond Assisi's walls, where lepers and thieves roved, finding a ruined chapel, conversing with a crucifix. The artist Giotto captures this on basilica walls, in the great mausoleum made for the saint after his death to claim his approval for their Christendom. But if you let your gaze penetrate, it is so much more stark than the old pious stories. It is what happens when you face your own dismantling and say yes to it. Francis was addressed by this pinioned figure, inviting him to relinquish all his facades, not a lord demanding fealty, but courteously from below, a wounded lover. He set about rebuilding the ruined chapel brick by painful brick. He said it was his calling, what the voice asked of him, unaware of just what was being rebuilt. This is how radical this man was. His literalism kept him close to instinct soil and the pain that comes from being at the end of yourself. Yet his story says there is a great lover at the frayed tether end, calling you, renovating you as you feel the slow dawn of visceral kindness. Yet his story says that there is a great lover at that frayed tether end, calling you, renovating you as you feel the slow dawn of visceral kindness. If you allow yourself to face the terrible invitation in the crumble-down church of your own brokenness, it won't leave you unwounded, but it will become a life. If you allow yourself to face the terrible invitation in the crumble-down church of your own brokenness. It won't leave you unwounded, but it will become a life. It became a life for Francis. It became a life for many, many other people who followed him. He had a massive effect on medieval society. Some historians apparently credit him with the beginning of the dismantling of the feudal system because anyone who joined his order 
and and there was there was like the first order which were the brothers the second order were the sisters the third order were lay people they were all released from having to carry arms for a feudal lord so many joined that that the lords had very few people to call on he did what was right in front of him and I remember one day when I was in the teeth of my breakdown I ran a men's circle at the time and someone had we used to make big fires every month and someone had brought a whole load of stuff from a house that he'd stripped out it was old uh, beams and uh, windowsills and windows and all sorts and he just dumped it it looked like a tsunami had left around a great big yew tree that we've got, a load of debris, and and it looked terrible. And my wife's like, you've got to get rid of that. Um, and near where it had been dumped, I have a little statue of St Francis. And so I went out every day for a few days and carried this all down near to where the fire was and stacked it. And I felt utterly wretched and I kept saying to Francis is this you know is this going to end am I going to feel better it, 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 you know I just I just was so distressed and gradually the things that I learned to do to write to walk to work to pay attention they became a life they're the life I still live if you allow yourself to face the terrible invitation in the crumble down church of your own brokenness, it won't leave you unwounded. It hasn't. But it will become a life. It will become a life. And it also made me think of, um, this makes me think of the incredible series by Jimmy McGovern called Broken, with Sean Bean as a Catholic priest, who has been, when he was young, abused by another Catholic priest you wonder how on earth he ended up in a seminary and becoming a priest. But he's a broken man in a broken parish with broken people. And each episode, you just get another story of real... I remember we, we did it for Lent in a, in a fairly middle-class parish. And people said, no, people don't really act like that. And I'm, I was thinking, come to the food bank. You know go out open your eyes people do live like this there's a whole scene of a middle class woman who 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 loses all her money on betting machines i met someone at the food bank who'd lost all his redundancy money 70,000 pounds on those fixed odds betting machines and he he's Sean Bean is gradually worn away by this and he feels like he's a complete failure that he can't he just can't carry on. His mother dies. 
and and you just feel the terrible brokenness inside him and suddenly the people who he's tried to help all realize this and i think it's at his mother's funeral he's he's giving out communion and they all get in the queue for communion and when he holds up the host to them and i'm sorry this is a plot spoiler he holds up the host and they say they take the host the the bread the body of christ and he says the body of christ and they say amen you wonderful priest and each one says it and the first time i watched it i absolutely sobbed out loud i was that something it i just thought that's the terrible broken down church of someone's life and in that terrible brokenness somehow healing and transformation comes to him it's it's an extraordinary series jimmy mcgovern is a great writer i think uh, it's really worth watching so that's where i found myself and that's how i found my way through and the way through didn't give answers it probably gave more questions than answers and i've become someone who is much more trusting of questions good questions than i have of people who who think they have all the answers and i hope you're not hearing me as saying i've got the answers the things i did were curative not cures and each one of us has to find the curative things to assuage and deal with the shadows and the basements and the crumble down churches of our lives again i'm turning to mary oliver in the book a thousand mornings this is a piece called the man who has many answers the man who has many answers is often found in the theaters of information where he offers graciously his deep findings while the man who has only questions to comfort himself makes music the man who has many answers is often found in the theatres of information where he offers graciously his deep findings while the man who has only questions to comfort himself makes music speaks for itself the man who has only questions to comfort himself makes music the woman who has only questions to comfort herself makes music that's what i'm trying to say what comes when you really face the terrible invitation is you start to make music i'll finish this podcast with um one of andreas schweitzer's pieces in in my book i've titled it facing one storm in the dark sea doesn't mean there won't be another and that's certainly true this is what he says if we are sometimes filled with and beset by profound existential angst or afflicted with the torment of depression such an experience can intimate that even now beneath the threshold of consciousness the germ of a psychic content is struggling to emerge from the collective unconscious to cause a decisive change in our lives there is no reason to be ashamed of 
such anxiety or depression. Quite the contrary. Someone who never knows such anxiety is most likely cut off from the deeper levels of his or her soul. It is only natural to fear the darker aspects of the self. If we are sometimes filled with and beset by profound existential angst or afflicted with the torment of depression, such an experience can intimate that even now, beneath the threshold of consciousness, the germ of a psychic content is struggling to emerge from the collective unconscious to cause a decisive change in our lives. In other words, something that from what we've inherited is struggling to emerge the, the impudent sprouting of a new life and it's disturbing he says there is no reason to be ashamed I can't say ashamed for some reason there is no reason to be ashamed of such anxiety or depression quite the contrary someone who never knows such anxiety is most likely cut off from the deeper levels of his or her soul it's a sign that you're going deeper it is only natural to fear the darker aspects of the self. It's only natural to fear going on a night sea journey, but it is definitely worth it. It's definitely worth it. And sometimes we just don't have a choice. But we will always find companions. We will always find curatives and ways through if we do the work go well and i look forward to talking to you next time about a sense of place which is one of the curative things for me is developing a sense of place go well poetry anxiety and vulnerability this is the anxious poets podcast